what we don't want to do is relinquish all of our autonomy to the corporations. I worry that if we do that, we may not be able to control our own destinies. And for me, one of the big things that I wanted for my life was to be able to be able to determine my own destiny. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on Inside Reproductive Health, I'm joined by Dr. Lowell Koo. Dr. Koo is an award-winning, nationally recognized, board-certified REI and reproductive surgeon. In addition to being a senior partner and medical director at his practice, Dallas IVF, Dr. Koo serves on the board for the Society of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility, SREI, as well as the Patient Education Committee and the Technology Committee at ASRM. We're going to talk about that. What I didn't know is that Dr. Ku also struggled with infertility and overcame that. He's committed to providing compassionate and personalized care that comes from both his medical training and his personal experience to help his patients achieve pregnancy rates that are consistently among the highest in the country. But doesn't everybody say that? Welcome to the show, Dr. Ku. <laughs> Lowell, I'm happy to have you on. Thank you, Griffin. It's just an honor and it's just such a privilege to be a part of the show. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Well, first off, I thought we were going to talk about being part owner of a private practice and being a partner. And I thought the whole thing about private practice was that they don't have time to be on things like the board of SREI and the committees at ASRM. So what's going on with that? You know, it's a, it's an, it's also an honor to be able to serve uh, my community uh, and the organization of American side of reproductive medicine, just kind of be able to be able to give back to the organization that gives so much to us. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it does take up a lot of my time, but it's, it's time that I, I make time for. So it's something that's so important to me to be able to give back, to be able to contribute to the organization that helps, you know, support us. So for me, it's super important. So talk a little bit about how you found yourself in private practice then, because you're still a relatively young doc. And I would m maybe venture that a lot of people who want to have that as part of their career path, sitting on committees or ASRM, being on the boards of other societies would drift toward the academy. How did you end up in private practice? Absolutely. You know, when I was going through fellowship, um, my main thought was that I was going to be an academic, uh, a teacher, a professor and, and teach fellows. I, I mean, I still love to teach, but I absolutely loved it when I was in residency training to teach the younger residents uh, and to teach the fellows when I was a fellow and the younger fellows. And so it was awesome. I love still teaching and, and, and seeing that sort of excitement from learning in the students' heads. So for me, I thought I was going to be a full-on academic. And then as, as fellowship sort of uh, went on, I started to think, you know, I think I'd like to try private practice first and, and see how that goes. And so I explored that opportunity for uh, private practice and sort of found my way into the practice that I'm in today at Dallas IBM. And so what attracted to you about becoming uh, a partner at the practice? Because I thought that... <laughs> 
younger REIs are said to be not entrepreneurial, that they don't want to take over partnership. They don't want to buy in. They want to go work for a large network, collect their paycheck, punch in, punch out. I don't believe that, which is why you're on the show and we're talking about it, but that's said enough. So what was it that attracted you to actually becoming someone that's at the helm of the organization? You know, I think it started actually when I was a little boy. My dad, who was a dentist, he had, he's in solo practice in dentistry, still practicing, although uh, he's about to retire. You know, he, he told me when I was a kid, he said, you know what, you should be your own boss and that you should be able to uh, be the, the captain of your own ship. I said, okay. All right. And that sort of stuck with me as a kid. And, 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 and to me, that's kind of how I, I viewed the practices that I was interviewing with. I wanted to see, you know, which practices could I join where I could grow with that practice, grow the practice along with my own practice into a, a larger, bigger practice where I could be very proud of the services that we offer, to be proud of the practice that we've built, and to be able to be actually one of the uh, bosses of my own uh, destiny. So to control my own destiny. And so I worried that if I were to join, let's say like a, a bigger corporate practice, I'd worry that I wouldn't have that control over my own practice. I'd worry that I'd always be an employee. And and that just wasn't something that I kind of saw for myself in the future. So that's why I decided to join Dallas. I didn't join a practice where it was like, okay, I, I think I can grow this practice and grow my own practice into something bigger. And and when I joined my practice, it was just me and and the the, the other partner. And so it was just two guys just kind of starting the practice and, and building it up. And now we have six to seven physicians and we are you know, hopefully continue to grow. So I want to jump back to that part about the employee, because I think that's something that's still unfolding of seeing what it's like to be an employee for a a much larger group or a partner at a group who also has a lot of their equity owned by a private equity firm or some other network. Let's talk about how the practice actually got started because I, I always thought that it's more common to see a a practice that starts off with two or three docs grow to the five, six, seven doc practices than the solo doc that goes one, two, three. How was that trajectory for you all? Yeah, when we first started, we were the two docs. And then one of the hardest things was to really be ready for the third doc. Both of our practices had to be, you know, full steam ahead, up and running before we could really feel comfortable adding a, a third one. But once we added the third doctor, the fourth and fifth, and the, and the next ones after that were a little bit easier because we started to create a, a template on how to get a, a practice going, how to get an associate busy, and what were the most important things to those associates in terms of their practice and their futures. So we, we kind of created a little template that we kind of follow for the, the subsequent associates, and that's worked fairly well for us. And so for, for me, that was the most important was to be able to be able to drive the ship, be able to be the boss of my own practice and not have to worry about maybe having someone look over my shoulder and tell me that maybe I need to be more productive or or maybe somebody telling me that, oh, I can't take that vacation to go see my daughter's recital. I just, I wanted to be my own boss. Were you the second doc in then? I was, I was the second one in. So and, was uh, this an, how long had your partner been in practice in the market before you joined? Yeah. So he had been in practice for literally 10 years before I joined. And at that time in Dallas, there were probably about 10 to 11 infertility guys 
and, and uh, practitioners here in town. And when I joined, I was number 12. And since then, there has been a deluge of, of docs. And we've been fortunate that, that we've been able to, to, to choose from the people that want to come here to Dallas and, and to have them and ask them to join us. And we've been fortunate that they've wanted to join us. But yeah, it, he was here for 10 years first and I joined him. And then after that, it was about four years and then our third one joined. And then it was three years after that, the fourth one. And then it was literally like two years, the fifth one, and then a year later, the sixth and seventh. So it, it, we kind of figured out what the, the model should be like. So do you just look so much younger than I actually think you are or, 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 or than you actually are? I just think you're so much younger than you really are. When was this that you joined? What year was that? So, so I'm very honored that you think that I'm younger, but I am a little bit older. I was, I, I started saying, I started the, with this practice in 2008 after I graduated fellowship. So I had been doing this for a little while. And it's taken me a little while to kind of get the practice up and running and get the whole big organization up and running too. So I was, yeah, I graduated 2008 from fellowship. So then there's a, a four year get you join. There's four years before doc number three comes on and then a few years. And then it seems like the interval just decreases mm-hmm. by four, by 50% each time. Yeah. I wondered this because I see right now, particularly in small markets. So I don't know if this applies as much to large, fast growing markets like Dallas, but in small markets, I'm seeing a real hard time of the single practitioner, even yeah. attracting another doc. And so I wonder if, do you think that at the time you joined, do you think that that was different? It was more common to join up with a single doc and maybe that ship has sailed for some people. It's just harder to do that now. I totally agree. So first, you know, to, to address your thoughts about how some small towns may have difficulty attracting associates. And that's totally true. A lot of my colleagues from smaller towns, not smaller as in like small, small towns, but towns that are smaller than Dallas, they call me and they said, you know, we're having a hard time finding people coming to our town to, to just join our practice. So I feel for them. And so in Dallas, it's sort of the opposite. We have more, more than enough people coming and uh, the practice uh, luckily gets to, to, to choose from the, the people that are coming. But Dallas really has become so competitive with so many incoming fertility specialists graduating from, from fellowship. So it, it's gotten very competitive here in Dallas. Now we have, I think, around 30 to 40 infertility practitioners here from when I was to number 12. So it's been, it's been a struggle to, to kind of maintain market share. Now, the other thing that you had mentioned was that, you know, is that are those days of just hanging a shingle and are those days gone? I, you know, when I graduated from fellowship, I was worried that would I be able to make it if I just hung a shingle? There were so many things that I just didn't understand about starting a practice, about the business of, pra- of medicine and of practicing uh, of medicine. And like, how do you open up a lab? How do you, you know, open up a surgery? And these were things that really kind of scared me. And I wasn't sure that I would be able to do it by myself. So that's why I was looking for a practice that maybe was a smaller one where I could join them together. We could pull resources and knowledge to, to, to grow the practice. And so what was that transition like going from a practice that had been in business for 10 years with one principal at the helm to now having, I assume you started off as an employee, but then a partner, what was that transition like going from one to two? 
you know, as a fellow, we never, ever get any sort of training or teaching on, on partnership, you know, and they never tell us about the business of medicine. And so, so partnering was always this sort of mystery that was shrouded in secrecy that no one ever sort of talked about. So I'm really glad that we had this opportunity today to really put a voice behind and to really, to kind of take back the, the curtain and, and kind of show people how it kind of works, at least in our practice. So the way it works is when you start in our practice as an associate, you're, you're an employee. And, and typically in Dallas, it takes about three to five years before the, your practice is pretty mature and that you're humming along seeing patients. So after the first year, we know that the business is going to be able to basically supporting the, the associate in the second year. We think that the associate might be able to support themselves. And then the third year, we think the associate is going to take off and then they should be able to partner after the third year at our practice. Some of our associates haven't been able to partner after three years, but that's okay. They partner at the third year and a half or maybe at the fourth year. So, so we're very open with our associates. We show them from day one, how they're performing within in their business, in our business model and our business plan. We show them the numbers, how are they performing? And then we kind of let them know so that they can hopefully understand that, okay, I need to maybe market myself more to try to build my practice even more so they can understand how it works. So we'll support them for the first three years. And then once they partner, then they can enjoy some of the headaches that, that I have as a partner. <laughs> Which was the more difficult transition going from one to two or two to three? I think two to three for us was the tougher transition because from one to two, it was sort of easy because he was sort of, the senior partner was so full of patients and busy. He was actually turning away patients. So he was losing business. So he thought, well, maybe we can have a second person to sort of capture that that business with the practice. And then once I started coming on board, it just, it took a little longer for me to get started just because more and more fellows were graduating and coming to Dallas and we were competing with each other. And so it slowed us slowed me down a little bit, but so that to go from two to three was harder for us. And then, and not just in terms of volume of building one's own practice, but just in terms of the structure of the organization, do you feel that, you know, there's a real shift from, is it two to three? That is the biggest, is it four to five? I mean, now you're at seven. So you've got a bell curve to analyze where, where do you think structurally operationally you really start to see, okay, we need to have different systems in place now. Absolutely. The infrastructure that we had built now really started to come into to, to play and that we needed it around the, after the fourth one was hired. We really needed to have a, an office manager that understood how to run a bigger practice. The office manager that we had at the time was with the practice for a long time, but she wasn't sort of experienced to, to run a larger practice. So we had to find someone who had more experience. So we had to build this infrastructure. So we had to find a practice administrator as well as an office manager, as well as financial counselors and coordinators and, and, and actually marketers. We started to hire marketers. And, and so the, the infrastructure really started to need to be formally founded after the fourth one was hired. Did you know that you wanted to be in Dallas because you saw this type of growth trajectory in a market like that? Were you looking at a few different markets where you're open or were you pretty set on Dallas? You know, uh, my parents and family are from, are here in Dallas and I'm from Dallas. I was born and raised in Dallas. So for me, Dallas was where I was really focusing. My wife is from Houston. So it was either Dallas or Houston for us. You know, I interviewed in a number of places uh, around the nation. But when we landed in Dallas and I stepped off the airplane, got into DFW airport, which is crazy. It was, it felt like home. And for both me and my wife, we felt like this is where we want to be. So it was just sort of this sort of feeling and an emotion that hit us when we landed in Dallas and said, you know what we want to be. I always say that Texas is crazy, but it's my crazy. (laughs) 
Fair enough. And a market like Dallas is a very interesting one just because it has been growing so quickly for so long and doesn't seem to be slowing down. And so you know that you knew that you wanted to to be there. It also made sense as a place to to build up your practice. And you talked about it took you maybe three years, let's say, to to build your practice, somewhere between three and five years to really build your practice to the way you want it. And that's sort of what associates can expect in a market like that. Speaking more broadly, maybe not specific to Dallas, but what sorts of KPIs need to be agreed upon for the associates so that they know and the partner knows this is what we're going to say you're eligible for partnership after this or not. I've talked about it on previous episodes. I've interviewed people on the blog and I've just talked with partners and I've talked with associates who said, yeah, they thought they were going to be partner. There's no way they weren't pulling their weight. And then I've talked to associates that said, you know, they totally screwed me over. And the common thread between both of those conversations is there was not something that was really finitely defined and agreed upon in terms of key performance indicators that says, if you meet these metrics, then this is what makes you eligible for partnership that we can both sit down at the end of and say, were they met? Yes or no, objectively. And so broadly speaking, what do those need to be? What needs to be in writing? You know, that's the perfect, perfect question. When I first started here, there were no KPIs. I think the the senior partner was just kind of like running by the seat of his pants. And I didn't really know. And I was naive at the time. And so I just thought, oh, I'm just going to join the practice and then I'll partner. But And so we, over the years, we've developed these KPIs. And one of them is to sort of match the growth of my practice when I first started, which I'm like, I don't know if I'm the perfect model for that, but we want to see this sort of trajectory of growth in seeing the patient volume, revenue, billing, collections, all those things. And, and as long as they're sort of meeting that sort of benchmark each month and, it, and it's growing according to the sort of the graph that we have. And now we have you know six or seven lines on the graph. And we say, look, as long as you're running in these areas of the graph, then then you're you're set to partner. And that's kind of how we run it in our facility. And so, and rightfully so, we want to make sure that when the partner or when the associate's ready to partner, rather, that they're not going to struggle. I know when I actually partnered, my, my pay dropped because now I had overhead and I wasn't quite collecting the amount that I needed to to support myself. So it was a bit of a struggle for the first years after partnership. And so we don't want that for our, our new associates and new partners. We want to make sure that, that when they partner, that they're going to fly on their own and they can support themselves. Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person 
person before you put out an RFP or look for services before you get your house in order because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, Practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. Those six indices on the graph, do you enumerate them in the employment agreement? That is, if, if you're within this axis of the graph, this is what makes you eligible for partnership after employment? We don't actually enumerate as in like, this is the amount you must be you know, billing for or collecting, but maybe we should actually, <laughs> because these KPIs are very important because if the associate does feel like they're that they think that they, they should be able to partner. But then we look at the numbers and say that they really can't. That's this sort of disagreement is concerning for us. And so we want to make sure that we make sure that's a nice, happy agreement. So I think that for us, we don't have it enumerated, but we maybe should do that. I think that that's, I think that's a, it's a something that's missing in a lot of independently owned practices, but you're further ahead than many. And I think it seems to me that the risk that you took in 2008 of, yep, we're just flying by the seat of our pants and then we're going to come up with benchmarks if we both think it works out. I mean, that could work out. I just don't see nearly as many people eager to do that in 2020 as we're in 2008, especially when there's so many networks and large groups that can say, here's the track plain and simple. Here's the agreement plain and simple. To me, it just seems like less of a risk. Did you feel like you were taking a risk in 2008? I did. I definitely felt like I was taking a big risk that if if my practice didn't take off, I would have to find another place to go. And so it was worrisome to me. And so I think the part of that was the drive that helped drive me and it was sort of this the fuel to the fire that that allowed me to work even harder to, to try to make sure my practice survived. I wonder, did you also look at practices where the doctor was going to retire within five years? That the current single physician owner was going to retire and they wanted to sell to a new doctor. Did you look at any of those options? I considered those options, but my worry is that I, I didn't know if I could afford to to buy a practice that was so busy. I coming out of fellowship, I always I didn't have any money. I was dirt poor, and and so I worried that I wouldn't be able to afford something like that. So I kind of wanted to join as an employee first and kind of get my feet wet, and then partner. So that's kind of how I did. We've talked on the show before. Some groups have structures in place where they don't get. St- to top heavy. I mean, we've already established that you're going to look like you're 60 when you're 110. (laughs) And if anybody's going to outlive the rest of us, it might be you. Is there, is there a point where Lowell has to sell his equity and, and phase out at a certain age? Do you have any structure like that? I have noticed that in groups where there's four partner docs and they're all around the same age that it makes it just 
too top heavy for a younger physician to buy in. There's more distribution in your ages, but is there any kind of system in place that prevents you all from getting too top heavy? We do have, we don't have actually, we don't have a, a mandatory sort of retirement clause in our contract. However, I don't know. I, I, my dad is 78. He's still working. <laughs> I'm thinking I may work it until I'm 78 too. <laughs> I, I'm shaking my head. Yes, because I, <laughs> I can see that. I also see other practices where it's just, it's that, that other, the older doc is not maybe even doing retrievals anymore, or they're seeing far less patients, but their share of equity is still either the greatest or certainly greater than what it is relative to productivity. And there's trapped equity because of that. They haven't phased out appropriately. So their share is top heavy and it makes it nearly impossible for a younger doc to buy in. You're absolutely right. When there's only a certain number, limited number of shares, and let's say the, the the initial guy has most of those shares, it's it's definitely difficult for the younger guys to even make it worth it for them to even partner. If they're only buying in, let's say one percent of the practice, then it's not it may not be worth it. So you know we have we've had these discussions in our practice as well, and we we've, we've talked about how if the the practitioner's practice is waning and that they're not pulling their weight, quote unquote. Now we haven't defined what that is, that they will probably have to relinquish or sell their shares back to the, the practice. So I think that this is something that all practices should definitely talk about. And it should be an open discussion because you're right. If, if the practice doesn't have these discussions, they'll find themselves too, too top heavy. And then it makes the practice uninviting for new associates. Your dad planted the seed in your brain from a young age of being your own boss. You've mentioned that a couple of times as being part of the ethos of why you want to be a partner, not join a, a larger network. But I know the optics of a practice like yours and others in the market. I've got to give Ravi Gata a shout out because I know he'll give me, I know that Dr. Gata will give me grief if I, if I don't give their group a mention with Dr. Robbie's Gata and right, Dr. Man. Chantillis and their partners, but a, a practice like that, a practice like yours. I know the optics of practices like that, where the single physician, small market practice owner really isn't getting too many calls from private equity firms. They have far fewer exit options. A five, six, seven doctor practice in a market like yours that is growing 10,000 people a month in the metro, that looks really good to just about any network, to any private equity firm that isn't in the field yet that wants to break in the field. I imagine that you get a lot of calls and how does the ethos of being one's own boss stack up to some pretty attractive offers, I imagine. Yeah, no, first love Ravi Gata, love Sam Chantel, love that group. They're, they are awesome. You know, if we could, if we could only one day decide to uh, join forces, that would be great. But that's my plug for that. Okay. Well, I want to be a part of that deal. Just if, I, if, I, if your partners are listening in theirs, <laughs> the negotiation started right here on this show. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, if that could happen, that would be a dream come true for me. And so, but, but yeah, you know, I think we have been contacted by quite a few VCs and who are interested at this point in time, I think we're, we're still in a growth phase. We're not quite ready to sell. I think right now we want... And, and if we did decide that we were you know, going to turn over the reins of the practice, it'd be a sad day, I think, because I've always wanted to be the boss of my own practice and I'd be worried about that. But it would be 
that all the partners decided that all the associates have partnered before we we sell. So we don't want to leave any associates stranded. And so in I mean, that's a really, I think, noble thing to have with the, the doctors that you brought on your team. Do you have a buy-sell agreement then? Because it being one's own boss might be worth X to me, but it might be worth Y to the next partner. And so do you have a, a pre-planned agreement that says, okay, if once we are all partners, if if these criterion are met, we agree that we're going to sell because I think that's a hard decision for one proprietor to make, much less for seven to be in consensus. You're absolutely right. And having spoken with my colleagues around the nation who are in this position where they're like seven or nine physician groups and they're in the process of selling, I have heard a lot of headaches that have occurred where the the partners cannot agree on the terms of the sale. So we don't have a specific buy-sell agreement, but we do have discussions ongoing about, you know, when do we think we might be ready? The first thing was always, well, we, we feel that we would be ready if we are less in the growth phase and all the partners are partnered and that we don't have any associates. But I worry that there's going to be a lot of ongoing discussions at that time, if that time even comes for us, that we may not, disagree, we may not agree on everything. You've gotten used to being your own boss at this point. What would you want to make sure that you hold on to? And I don't think that this can be understated or at least considered in the overall cost benefit of selling equity, which I asked two different people this week to come on the show that have sold equity of their practice. And they said, yeah, well, we talked to the lawyer and we think that we could come on, but if anything were considered disparaging, you know, I just can't talk about this. And they'll say, you know, we can't choose our marketing firm. We can't choose our office supplier who we buy pens from. We can't make decisions about if we want to have a a baby reunion and we don't have total personnel control like we used to. For me, those words alone, I can't come on a podcast makes my price go up 25%, whatever it was. So for you, what is the most important control that you would need to hold on to? You know, for me, it would be making sure that I can still take great care of my patients. That's the most, that would be the most important thing is that I want to have still the autonomy to say, okay, if I want to do an office scope or I want to do this procedure that, that I will be able to do that. And that the, the bean counters aren't really breathing down my neck saying, no, no, you got to do this procedure because that's more lucrative. That's what I want to make sure is that I want to still be the doctor. I want to be able to take care of my patients the best that I can. So that's for me, the number one. What would you say to someone just leaving fellowship right now, or maybe they're finishing up a two-year employment agreement and they're not going to become a partner at their current practice, or they're not going to stay in academics. They're looking at larger groups. Maybe they can take over for a solo doc. Maybe they can join up with a solo doc or a privately owned group like yours that has multiple partners. What would you want them to consider? I'd want them to consider first, are they a good fit for our practice? And are they going to be like-minded like all the rest of our physicians and, and, and associates and partners? Which is meaning, are they going to want to be able to propel their own practice, number one, and will they propel the bigger practice as a whole to, to elevate it, to make it stronger, bigger, and better for so that we can reach out to more patients? So I think that's the first thing is like, do you fit with the, the practice that you're looking at? 
And if it's ours, then do you fit our practice? I think the second thing would be like, well, what is it that you're, that you're looking for in a practice? Now, do you, do you want to practice the way you want to build a partner or do you want to join a practice where you can just maybe have the, the luxury of just being an, uh, an associate or an employee? You don't have to worry about hiring and firing and all the headaches that come with partnering. And those are the two things I would definitely start out with. You know, recently we had a, a physician join us who was already in private practice in town. And so you know, it's been a nice uh, union for us both because this physician brought in some of her patients and her busy practice and we were able to provide infrastructure for her. So it's been, it's been a nice union. I want, I was thinking of concluding, but I want to ask you a tough question about midsize practices. Is it all right if I do that? Yeah. And I'm, you, you could say your practice is a large practice. I mean, you are one of the largest, if not the largest in the fourth biggest market in the country. So you could say that Dallas IVF is a large practice. But if we're just talking about groups that are in multiple cities and have mm-hmm. dozens of physicians, and then yeah. we're comparing that to two doc, three doc, single doc practices, just for the sake of this, let's say that, that it's a midsize group. Mm-hmm. I've heard other people in the field say I've experienced sometimes that sometimes a midsize group is the worst of both worlds in certain operational senses because they don't have the, the C-suite infrastructure that the largest groups do where there's a CEO leading and they've got a chief human resources officer and a chief revenue officer and a COO that's keeping everything in line. And then the docs are sort of on a board and everything is established. And sometimes there's private equity, sometimes there isn't, they've got the resources and the infrastructure. And then, you know, I've, I also see people that run successful single doctor practices with seven people in their office because they're that lean. And when you're that lean, there's not multi-tier management. There's more forgiveness when you don't have systems and, and uniform processes in place. Whereas when you start to get to four or five doctors, you're not in that place where you have all the infrastructure and the resources, but you do have a lot of the problems of growth. How do you deal with that? You're absolutely right. We are sort of in this phase of our practice where we are in a growth phase and we are suffering some growing pains. Absolutely. We don't, we're not large enough to really require a C-suite yet, but we're getting there. And so that's, we've been talking about, well, does our practice administrator now become our CEO? And then do we hire another person who becomes our CFO? And so uh, it becomes this sort of discussion like, well, are we ready for that? Or do we have the the funds for that? Another thing that we find that is a bit of a difficulty in our, in this sort of size practice is that, well, we don't really have senior positions that are behaving like managing positions yet. So it's sort of like we all in our practice, everybody has an equal vote, which is great, but sometimes those votes don't add up to a majority and they're all different votes. And so, and so I think that in larger practice where you have, like you said, the, the practice of the 20 doctors in different countries and whatnot, they probably have these sort of managing partners and you have the C-suite and they have a system that's already set so that the younger guys come in and are like, Hey, look, this is how it works. Here we're sort of developing our own our own system, and we are looking to the bigger boys to see okay how are they how are they doing it how are they managing it and we are sort of modern uh, modeling ourselves rather after those guys. Well, you are certainly an example of a midsize group that is growing quickly, that has grown from small to midsize pretty quickly and on the trajectory to being a large group. You're also someone that came in out of fellowship, bought into a practice that was established and did what a lot of single 
physician in smaller groups would like to promise younger doctors that they're recruiting. You're, you've actually done that. You've gone, gone, you were a second doc, you've gone to seven, you're 12 years out of fellowship at this point, you've got this going. So how would you want to conclude with our audience about the future of independently owned practices and how younger docs might see themselves fitting into that model? I would recommend to all fellows graduating to take a very good look at an independent practice that is growing, mid-sized practice as well, to see if they could fit in. Because what we don't want to do is relinquish all of our autonomy to the corporations. I worry that if we do that, we may not be able to control our own destinies. And for me, one of the big things that I wanted for my life was to be able to be able to determine my own destiny. And so I worry that if they don't look at the independent practice or join an independent practice, they may not have that ability to have a say as to their future. I would add to that, ask, is there anything that would preclude me and coming on Inside Reproductive Health and speaking my mind? And if they say, yes, there is something that would preclude, run away. Don't join them. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Dr. Ku Lowell, thank you so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you, Griffin. It's been an honor and a pleasure. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.